Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. Talk about a rush to the big money. In the three decades since that track first hit, China, the world's most populous country, catapulted a record number of peasants into the middle class. As factory to the world, the economy grew at an average of 10% a year and accumulated trillions in foreign reserves, devouring oceans of cement and oil, minting dozens of billionaires, pop-up cities with millions of people in shiny new buildings and trains, growth, property speculation, casinos, condos, high-speed rail, economic miracle, or the biggest bubble in history. My guest has been warning for five years now. Full disclosure, stay with us. Local broadcast of Full Disclosure is made possible by Elwood Thompson's, measuring the distance food travels from farm to fork in support of local farmers in our community. Elwood Thompson's local market, serving Richmond for 25 years, located at the top of Carytown. Joining us from NPR studios in New York City is Jim Chanos, founder and president of Kinecos Associates, a $3 billion uh, U.S. hedge fund, which is very well known for its skepticism on China. Uh, Jim, thank you so much. I know you've been jammed this week, but uh, it's a treat to have you on. I'm glad to be here, Robin. Uh, Let's start with a loaded question. Instead of uh, Russia's big money being the song at the top, should it have been that track from the 80s turning Japanese? Would that have been more appropriate? (laughs) Well, it's interesting you say that because the last time we saw what we are now seeing in China was probably in in the other big Asian bubble uh, from 25 years ago, Japan. So your your, uh, hedge fund is 30 years old. That track by Rush is 30 years old. We're going back to the mid-80s. And, you know, to take us back to that zeitgeist, um, you know, movies like Gung Ho, where the entire world was going to succumb to Japan. The Japanese were coming here and taking over our factories. The the Japanese students were taking over our universities. We all wanted to learn Japanese. Colleges could not hire uh, Japanese foreign language professors fast enough. And you really saying that this is neatly analogous to that situation? Well, it's never exactly the same. But if, if you go back to that period, as, as you have, um, what's interesting is that not only was everybody trying to learn Japanese, but they were trying to learn Japanese management methods. And the whole idea of state-directed capitalism, which, by the way, Japan still practices a little bit, where you have the, the, the government promoting certain industries through these large ministries, and you have the giant, uh, the giant conglomerates allocating capital— um, is somewhat analogous to the China of the past five years. In addition, you had an export-driven economy that was beginning to sort of get less competitive. It morphed into a financial speculation and real estate speculation economy. Uh, the companies practiced what was called Zytec. And a lot, as the late 80s uh, uh, went on, a lot of the companies were making more money in the stock market and real estate markets than they were in uh, producing cars or consumer electronics or what have you. Uh, in addition, they began exporting capital and building factories all over Asia, which led the seeds, which were the seeds for the the Asian crisis in '97 and '98. Mm. So there's there's a lot of there's a lot of similarities actually, and and the fact that they were doing it in a better way than the Western uh, economic models, and maybe we could learn from them. It turned out it was just a lot of debt and a lot of uh, uneconomic projects financed at the end of the boom uh, that that would never 
make any sense and, and uh, led to the zombification of their banking system. But to the, to the, the credit of the Chinese, right, in fairness, they're doing it without all the Hello Kitty and, and acquiring Rockefeller Center. <laughs> well, uh, they acquired the our biggest Kitty. pork producer. I mean, maybe well, that's the analog. <laughs> well, they, what, they, is the, what is the Rockefeller Center or gung ho uh, Michael Keaton moment here with China? It's not like we're not really getting that. Again, going back to 1989, you talk about a, a uh, divergence of fortunes, right? Was it true in, in 1989, the Japanese royal palace, the land underneath it was worth more than all the real estate in Canada, notionally? And at the same time, in 1989, uh, China has its Tiananmen Square massacre. And following that, my impression is that the the totalitarian regime there has kind of made a social compact with the people. Like, look, we're gonna we're gonna uh, ease off the pressure a bit by giving you some element of economic self determination. So go out there, multiply, own land, own property, speculate, but just don't touch the political rail. Am I am I right in that read? I think that's exactly right, and 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 it reached its flower with the previous two uh, regimes under uh, Zheng Zemin and uh, Hu Jintao. Basically, China's open for business. Make as much money as you can. It doesn't bother us. It's, it, it will help the economy, but just don't rock the boat. And the new regime that's come in is something quite a bit different, which we can we can talk about. Yeah. But uh, Xi Jinping is a different animal than Zhang Zemin and Hu Jintao. But at, the, at, the, that... at the base of everything, they are the world's factory. And this is where I, I you know, I almost get into a, a, a meaning of life existential wormhole. Like where does the uh, where does the buck or the yuan in China start or stop? Is it generated by private activity? Is it generated by public activity? You hear things about like Walmart being China's sixth biggest trading partner if it was a country. You look at the bottom of every computer at, at you know on, on your clothing labels. They are they are producing and they are collecting trillions of dollars of of of, of foreign reserves and trillions in euros. So there is something there. Oh there's no doubt there's something there. It's just not as important today as it was five, six years ago. Uh, five, six years ago net exports were twelve percent of GDP. Um, today, the number is, is, is sort of 3 4%. Um, and, and that's comprised basically of, of exports being 30% or so, uh, give or take, and, uh, and uh, imports being 25%. So it's a much smaller part. The real driver to the Chinese economy today is construction uh, slash investment. That's still 45% of GDP. Tell us and about that, that stat that you saw. And I read this. You know, Joe Nocera did a, an incredible profile of you in the New York Times. I love his writing. I love that that he's been following you since you guys crossed paths at Fortune magazine. And I'll get into how you, you tipped off a lot of people to the Enron bunko. Um, but you you really did a triple take when an associate of yours at Kinico said that this there was some stat in terms of acreage of, of new construction yeah. and you corrected him. What what was that all about? What what, what happened was we were we, we were looking at, at why it was that the commodity companies in 2009 were making so much money into the teeth of the global recession, and I sort of I knew intuitively it had to do with China. So I told my team, let's take a look here at China and see why it is there's scoop you know vacuuming up all this iron ore and copper and aluminum and so forth. And uh, my real estate analyst was was giving the partners a briefing, and he wrote some numbers on whiteboard and said, currently China has 5.6 billion square meters of uh, high-rises under construction uh, and uh, and approved. Say that again, 5.6 billion square meters, key point, um, half office and, and half residential. And I thought for a second, I said, well, wait a minute. Alex, you mean 5.6 billion square feet because 5.6 billion square meters is roughly 60 billion square feet. 
And uh, he turned and he said, I know. I triple-checked the numbers. It's 5.6 billion square meters. And so you're and, like, stop the presses. We got a short China. <laughs> well, it, what, what occurred to me is if a half of that is office, 30 billion square feet, that equals a five-foot by five-foot uh, cubicle for every man, woman, child in China. <laughs> by the way, all of that's been built, and, and the new number is something like 10.6 billion square meters currently. Uh, so, I mean, it, it just struck to the madness of, of just how much of the economy was basically a construction site. Mm. And, and that's when we began to dig in and really look at the numbers and try to figure out what it was that made the Chinese economic model so unique and how could it end. There was a stat that Bill Gates tweeted out last year that everybody did quadruple takes on. It was one of the most tweeted things uh, uh, that Bill Gates ever put out. Um, China used more cement in the three years between 2011 and 2013 than the U.S. used in the entire 20th century. We're talking yeah. about the century of the United States, the Eisenhower interstate highway system, uh, suburbia, uh, the economic boom after World War II, uh, the military-industrial uh, uh, complex. I mean, uh, uh, that's fine. China is an enormous country. It has over four times the U.S.'s population, but but that that can't stand. No, no it, and, and the whole world, and the important point about that, and he's right, they accelerated all this development in a very short period of time, and the whole world actually jumped up to serve it. And one of the statistics I like to point out to people, if we look at the global capital spending of the entire global mining industry, guys who dig holes in the ground, from 1990 to 2000, it went from basically $4 billion a year for everybody in 1990 to about $14 billion a year. And half of that is, is equipment and half of that's the cost of digging the hole. Hmm. From 2000 to 2012, the top of the global commodity cycle now, in, in retrospect, we can pretty confidently say that, annual capital spending for the mining industry went from $14 billion to $125 billion a year. Hmm. And, and I can't overemphasize that enough. The global commodity super cycle that affects countries like Australia, Canada, Brazil, um, followed lockstep with China. And, and just massively invested to serve China's growing appetite for these raw materials. And I think that's one of the knock-on effects that we're seeing in the emerging markets today, that now as China's growth machine begins to sputter and inevitably slow down, these countries are, are stuck. Uh, it blew my mind. I saw a stat in one of your investor presentations that since 2001, and that was, I believe, when China uh, was added to the World Trade Organization. Yes, uh, that was China, key date. Yeah, China has accounted for 13% of global GDP uh, in 2014. That's up from 4% in 2001. So you yeah. cannot underscore how important that multiplier effect is to, you know, the broader BRIC story. Uh, Goldman Sachs came out and anointed Brazil, right. Russia, India, China, to a certain extent, Indonesia, the Philippines. Um, you cannot really uh, – are, are you kind of telling us, if I step back from this, that the commodity super cycle and the uh, emerging market dream, that was, that was all just a facade? That was a, a mirage? Well, no, it was all linked to China, and it was all linked to this, this Chinese economic model, which we're so critical about, that, that, in, that in order to drive GDP, the easiest way to do it is stick a shovel in the ground. And, and that is the crux of the Chinese story. At the end of the day, you, you, you really melt everything else away, and that is still the issue. How do they transform from this heavy capital-intensive model of putting up bridges, condos, airports, stadium, and, and then rinse and repeat to one which the consumers are actually spending 
uh, on serv- goods and services on a recurring basis. Well, that's the, bet, that's the bet that everybody is making when you hear a China long come in or, or a person who espouses this being the China century. You can look at other tertiary statistics, the consumption of pork, um, uh, um, uh, you know, train infrastructure, train schedules, uh, other things that happen there. Uh, the demand for cars that, you know, if you don't believe Chinese financials, you can certainly believe a General Motors or a multinational company that has to uh, stand by uh, uh, certain accounting standards that the Chinese listed local shares don't. And they're telling you it's more than it's more than anecdotal. I can give you proof that there's end user demand, that there's a consumer class here. Yeah, except that the numbers now have all turned down for most of those companies. And, and, also, when you get a debt-driven asset inflation and construction boom, you get all sort of ancillary consumer effects. I mean, people feel wealthier, they spend, they borrow. Um, the debt buildup that, that, is, uh, that has basically been linked with this development in China has been nothing short of incredible. Uh, going back to 2001, when they entered the WTO, and they actually had a bit of a banking crisis back then as they were cleaning up their state-owned enterprises. The Chinese economy was roughly $1 trillion in U.S. dollar terms. And they had total debts in their system of also, interestingly, $1 trillion, give or take. And a lot of those ended up going bad. However, the Chinese economy is now 10 to $11 trillion U.S., but the debt is now pushing $30 trillion U.S. And that is kind of so, analogous to the multiples, the, the nosebleed multiples of, of uh, uh, actual economic staying power that you saw with Japan in 1989. It's worse. It's, wor- it's getting worse now. And, and, and that's the problem. Increasingly now, a dollar of new debt in China creates less and less GDP growth. So well, the easy gains have, have been made. There, there's a classic economic model. And, and actually, Paul Krugman, for your listeners, Paul Krugman wrote a great essay in 1994 on uh, the the myth of the Asian economic miracle or something to that effect. You can find it online. And he talked about the the classic development model, and and he he began to worry about what he saw in Asia uh, that turned out to be the Asian crisis a few years later. And he points out there's really sort of four phases for for an emerging These are almost like stages of death and dying and grieving. (laughs) A little bit, yeah, a little little bit, Robin. I hate to sound uh, moribund, right? But The first one is, is you educate your populace to basically a secondary education level. You, you take illiterate people and you, you, you teach them basic skills. Number two, you move people from rural to urban, where they're more productive. Uh, number three, you apply capital, where capital has never been applied. And, and so people begin to work efficiently with machines and so on and so forth. And then the fourth and the toughest one that, that, that many economies never get to, or at least struggle to get to, is you begin to innovate on your own and you begin mm. to produce products that people want that nobody else does. You innovate. You, you have better products. That three-point turn is just vexingly difficult to make. It is. And it's the one – post the Asian crisis, the only two that made it from that group, the Asian Tigers, were South Korea and Singapore. Yeah. South Korea, of course, innovated in consumer electronics and other areas, chips, and, and, and became world class. And Singapore did it in services and finance. But Malaysia, Thailand, Indonesia – They did not. Uh, they did not. And, and, and basically it was just a capital bubble. And, and the question really for China, now that they've moved people to the cities, now that they've, of course, employed huge amounts of debt and capital, will they actually begin to innovate and produce things on the cutting edge a la a South Korea, or will they just struggle to be the world's sort of, you know, Walmart's manufacturer? 
Now, you were uh, extremely prescient on the situation at Enron. Let's, you know, it's not neatly analogous to this, but you have a nose for uh, things that are unkosher on financial statements or, or calling out uh, a BS um, or, or facade or artifice or that kind of um, um, ledger domain or hanky-panky, whatever you want to call it. No <laughs> one would believe that if you came up to me in the year 2000 or 1999. Enron was known as one of the world's most innovative companies. They were going to put out carbon credits ahead of a, you know, a, a carbon tax situation. It was a play on on uh, Gore even winning the White House. I remember somebody told me in 2000. Uh, these guys, they had barges. They had all sorts of things going on. And yet, you know, you're there as kind of one of the lone voices saying, no, it's a, it's a, it's a financing scheme. It's a Ponzi scheme. It's all, um, you know, smoke and mirrors on the balance sheet and certain off-balance sheet obligations and assets that they can kind of tuck into cookie jar a great number for Wall Street. And I never stopped... Um, to look at these financial statements and and say to myself, my God, this is impossible to read, even if they unpack it with 50 footnotes. Uh, <laughs> I just trusted them. I said, you know what? I, there's a diffusion of responsibility. All of the sell-side analysts, all the buy-side analysts that are out there, uh, the, I, I would trust that. It was almost like secondary, that there's no way they could be pulling on this magnitude of a con. And I don't know if it was self-fulfilling prophecy, but in 2001, 2002, it, it all happened. It fell apart. Enron became synonymous with corporate fraud. You're telling me potentially there's something tantamount here on, on a much grander multi-trillion dollar scale? Well, I mean, Enron, Enron was a situation where the executives went out to, to intentionally hide things and, and whatever. It, it's, it's much harder to do that as a whole country. Um, so it, I think that, that the analogy is, is a little stretched. Um, but having said that, I mean, many of the things that marked Enron as a bad business, low return on capital, high reliance on debt, um, uh, uh, opaque financial statements, um, that you can certainly almost all apply to, to the Chinese economic model. I mean, the returns that the state-owned enterprises have been below their cost of capital for years. And uh, the opacity, of course, we all know about. Um, and, uh, and, and, and so, well, if you can't that, trust their numbers, similar... if you can't trust their numbers, Jim, i.e., you know, official GDP, the print slows to 7% in 2015. You don't buy that. <laughs> I mean, what do you buy? Well, well, Robin, I mean, China is the only, uh, industrialized country that knows its annual GDP on January one of that same year. Hmm. Um, so it, it, it's, 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 can't a no, you chalk that up to great central planning? I mean, this is the country of, of great five-year plans, is it not? Is it not? Yeah, exactly. And, and, of course, they put their GDP out two weeks after the end of every quarter and never revise them. So I, the GDP number is probably the least reliable number uh, of all of the Chinese data series. And even the Chinese, I think, Li Kuang on, on, on WikiLeaks uh, admitted, well, you know, we just make that number are up. There, are there proxies that you at Kinecos and, and your, your partners can more safely rely on? We do, and you you sort of uh, referred to one of them. I mean, we, we will look at uh, we will look at what companies that we trust are saying. So, for example, when when uh, everybody's saying, "Well, real estate is picking up," I see that Kone in Finland and Otis Elevator. Kone is the, United, the elevator company, right? Exactly, United, and Otis at, at United Technologies. by United Technologies, right? Are telling you that their sales suddenly are turning down quite a bit in China. So that tells you something a little bit about new construction of high rises. Um, 
And, and, and same with, while I don't trust a lot of the aggregate financial statistics, I do trust the individual bank financial statements to, to a some extent. And so we can watch bank loan growth and, and, and things like that and get a reasonable proxy as to how credit growth is, is going. Same thing with shipping rates. So shipping rates have just collapsed in the last few months um, between Northern Europe and China, container shipping rates. Is it true that rates. a bunch of shipping companies have gone under, the, 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 the Beijing has let them go under? Um, they're, they're two, the two of the big ones, they're merging, um, I think, not out of strength but out of weakness. So, um, But they'll keep, them, they'll keep the system, much like they did with their rail companies a few years ago. They will do whatever they can to keep the, the, the so-called national champions alive, the big state enterprises. Hmm. They won't let them go under. Now, I want to understand something. Jeff Gunlack, uh, the, the really soft-spoken and humble uh, bond manager out at um, <laughs> Double Line, he said that you know capitalism without bankruptcy and, and uh, distress is akin to Christianity without hell. It just doesn't, doesn't really work. I mean, you kind of need one to have the other. Uh, these guys have not really had a true cycle of, of uh, bankruptcy and distress in the post-2001 WTO period. I mean, you kind of need to slow down and have creative destruction. You cannot defy economic physics by growing, you know, 10% a year, even if those numbers are substantially baked. Well, and one of one of the, the underlying aspects of China is that people, when it comes to matters financial, people trust the government. And so when they buy these sort of high-yielding, trust products and wealth management products that, that the, the banks and the shadow banks uh, sell individual investors at 12% or 14% interest rates um, that are not guaranteed by the, by the bank where you, you buy them, um, people say, well, I don't worry about that because the government won't let it go under. And so you get this moral hazard on an entire economic scale in China, which is why I think what happened – I don't really – watch the Shanghai stock market as an indicator of the economy, because as a friend of mine said, it's, it's sort of like pigs on LSD. Um, you know, it, it's, you know, who knows where it's going to go. But, but what really was interesting in the, the episode of, of the run-up and, and, and the subsequent collapse is that the government really showed itself to mm. not be omnipotent and omniscient. And, and that, in fact, they were flailing. They were, you know, contradicting themselves. They were putting out these draconian statements. They were sending uh, the Ministry of Public Security agents into the brokerage houses. Um, and, and all this sort of really ham-handed stuff that, that, that I think sort of shocked the world into saying, well, maybe these technocrats in Beijing, you know, aren't as smart and wise as we thought they were. And they're sort of like the rest of us. They, they sometimes, you know, don't have it figured out. Hmm. Full disclosure, we're talking to Jim Chanos, founder and president of Kinecos Associates, probably the most respected uh, China skeptic uh, uh, over the last five or six years. Uh, it's a real treat to have him. He's joining us from NPR's New York City studios. Uh, on that point, Jim, uh, the Chinese street you hear these stories uh, anecdotally. Obviously, the state media is not reporting it about um, maybe hundreds, thousands of, of villages protesting, some violently every year at uh, the government kind of bigfooting them out of uh, their territory for construction projects, for whatever China's idea of eminent domain is, um, that that. You know, even though people are substantially happy there, you see uh, pangs of, of nationalism when Jap Japan is brought up, um, that the government, you know, and this goes back to projecting omnipotence, 
uh, if it shows any sort of weakness that there could be a, a mass foment uh, after that social compact of 1990 where, you know what, go out and pig out economically and we'll, we'll cover that for you if you don't touch politics. Are they worried? I mean, when you see things like them throwing $400 billion at the stock market and that not protecting the stock market over the last month, are, are they just really terrified of the street and having to somehow uh, suppress people actually in person a la Tiananmen 1989? Yeah. I don't. I don't think we're in that kind of situation yet. Yet, Robin. I don't think, and I'm not saying they're going to get there. Most of, by the way, most of the demonstrations that you mentioned, and they do have a lot of them every year, um, are, are really for two reasons. One, as you indicated, it's when land is sort of seized from people and they're not compensated properly, or they're moved to substandard dormitory type things, and basically the the the, the local village or prefecture takes the land and sells it to developers mm-hmm. as a way to, to raise income. Um, that, and, and that those have been going on for a while. Um, the other the other source of most disturbances, particularly in urban areas, is uh, usually unpaid wages, uh, where workers ha- a business has failed, they haven't been paid in a few months, and typically the you know the boss absconds, just disappears one day, and 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 they sort of demonstrate at the local state level or, or you know ministry level to get paid. And, and so we're not at the point of any kind of Tiananmen political movement uh, that, that uh, certainly I know of. And, and but indulge I, me. It, when, does it, when does it hit that tripwire? Um, if, if, if you, do, you, do you, for example, think that the economy is maybe contracting right now? I think certainly at best it's, it's – it, the way we would look at it, it's probably very low single digits, if at all. Uh, and, and most of the stuff we look at is probably indicating you know, maybe zero or, or slightly negative. Um, and, and I think that it's been like that for a while, for probably the last year. Um, so it's definitely – and even using their numbers, when, uh, from 2010 to, to, to now, nominal GDP, which uh, has gone from 15 percent to, to 5, basically it was uh, 10 percent real and 5 percent inflation in 2010, and now it's 7 – so supposedly 7 real and 2 deflation. So, I mean, even with their numbers, the economy has been on a, a 2% uh, a, a decline each and every year for the last five years. You're on the record as it's saying China's worse than you think. Whatever you might think, it's worse. I noticed that when I meet with, with people uh, on the street, investors, pension fund people, institutional managers, the worst case scenario to them, uh, what they call a hard landing, is China growing in the low single digits. I mean, walk us through, hold our hands and walk us through the kind of the nightmare scenario. If all of this stuff has to come home to roost, if you see, I don't know, bond vigilantes, what what, what could trip up the entire thing to make it a, a kind of uh, economic crisis properly? Yeah, well, it'll, it would be a debt crisis. And at the end of the day, this is my story has been a credit story. There's this buildup of, of bank loans and other shadow banking assets uh, to support the construction the construction boom. And that's really, at the end of the day, all this, the stock market is a sideshow. The, more, the two big events this summer has been the, the, the perception that the government has mishandled things. That was number one. That was related to the stock market. The other was the announcement a few weeks ago of, of the beginning of a devaluation of the uh, currency. And that has been really kind of quietly what's been happening is that capital flight has now begun to accelerate pretty dramatically out of China. Mm. And I think it's $100 billion over the last two weeks was the last figure I saw. So that's $10 billion a day. Um, that gets you through your liquid foreign exchange holdings in about a year. 
So all of this buildup in foreign exchange down through the years. So the years, headline number of, say, $3 trillion, that's not liquid you'd have to break in case of emergency? That's not kind of tier it, one? No. A woman named Charlene Chu has done some great work on this. And uh, uh, of the three of the three six, I think official number now, uh, two seven of it is liquid. Uh, in what you would consider U- EU and U.S. Treasury bonds and so on and so forth. But keep in mind that from zero, Chinese companies, which of course we 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 presume are backed by the state, have also borrowed about one point two trillion offshore in the last two years from zero. So the real net number is kind of kind of you know in the high ones. And uh, that's that that can go quickly. And has um, some of this already been spent on on shares to no avail? Propping some of the stock it probably market. Has, yeah, well, some of it probably has. Although you know they can print RMB to buy RMB, but um, but at the end of the day, the the nightmare would be is if they the devaluation gets out of control. And I'm not foreseeing that. But keep your eye on debt levels, currency, capital outflows. Those are the real indicators, not the Shanghai stock market. Now, everything is hardwired and interconnected. The United States and China hold one another by a special delicate appendage. Uh, what would that do to Treasury buying here in the United States? How much of our interest rate backdrop um, is, is dependent on kind of the Chinese looking at us and, and our debt as the redoubt of safety, subsidizing our profligacy? Well, I mean, I, I, first of all, the Chinese haven't been net buyers of Treasuries now for a number of years. I mean, the biggest buyer of Treasuries was our own Fed. Um, and so the, they haven't been on the margin a support of, of the treasury market. Now, they might be on the margin right now a net seller. But again, this is, this is a pretty deep and liquid market. And uh, in fact, the reason supposedly the bond market has not been rallying as the stock market's been declining is because there's been a big seller out there. And, and market participants think it might be the Chinese. I have no idea. But the point is, is that I, I don't. I, that's one thing I don't worry about is the Chinese selling our treasury bonds. So Someone let me let them. me then wax mercenary unabashedly. Um, can't it be a great thing for the United States if China lands hard? I mean, after all, let's let's go back to the Asian economic crisis. I remember uh, gas prices hit ninety nine cents a gallon uh, in nominal terms in in nineteen ninety eight. Um, you know, Asia is consuming far less in terms of uh, petroleum, raw materials, commodities. Construction costs in the United States fell. The United States is growing legitimately, albeit, however, you know, modestly. Um, you do get an enormous windfall in this country when China is not consuming half as aggressively. Yeah, I, mean, I don't necessarily disagree with that. I think that uh, we are, and I've said for years, we are the major economy least linked to credit problems in China. Um, you know, commodity, the commodity exporting com- countries are, are the most affected. But, you, you know, countries like Germany would be affected, who, who export large amounts of, of their GDP to China. Machinery, um, fine tools, the things yeah, that, that mm-hmm. China needs for its uh, huge factory complex. We basically export mo- uh, you know, a lot of agricultural products to China. And so... Um, the U.S. is the least affected. Again, we have that we have that large domestic economy, and uh, it's one of the strengths of our economy, I think. And so, uh, bringing down energy prices, commodity prices, as you say, I think uh, I think are good things. The Chinese devaluing to make their exports cheaper, I think, is probably a bigger issue within Asia than it is 
across uh, across the Pacific. But then whatever a Chinese hard landing looks like, what does that do to the likes of, say, the NAFTA players, Mexico, Canada, who are intimately linked to the United States exports yeah. regime? What does it do well, then to a Brazil? I want to, you know, kind of tease this out for me because we're dealing with a very, very different world from what we saw in 1997. And even in 1997, you never got the impression that China uh, landed nearly as hard as Malaysia or Indonesia or the Philippines or Thailand. If it did, we wouldn't have known uh, in 97. But, um, you know, communications were not as good as they were today. And we don't have the Internet and keeping us up real time on these things. But I think that's where you make a good point. What are the second and third tier knockoff effects if Peru, Chile, Brazil are all carrying too much debt because they they built up infrastructure to export to China? Well, then that has an impact in the Latin American basin and has an impact in U.S. and NAFTA countries. So I, I think that's where we have to keep an eye on, on aggregate demand and, and knock-on effects. And, you know, as we saw with the beginning of, of the residential real estate unwind in the U.S., you know, small part of the overall story, but, it, but because of the debt magnifier, it spread quickly. And that's what we have to watch here is, is how does China's debt problems and the debt problems of any of the EM countries that have been rising to support it transmit, if at all, to the industrialized world. But to your mind, what is the next weakest link in the most systemically important emerging market nations? Are, you know, is it Brazil? Is it Russia? Uh, does, does Venezuela especially with oil prices plunging and its its uh, fiscal situation, its balance of payments crisis, does that then recourse to a bigger economy? I know you guys must have this modeled in a way, because when I look through your <laughs> notes, you you look at, for example, uh, solar as, as, as a victim of this, or uh, the shale gas patch in the United States. There are all these things that are only twice or thrice removed from China. You know, well, we've, been, we've been negative on the whole commodity space for a few years now because of this, and, and particularly the energy space. Um, due to a lot of specific reasons, uh, due to the fracking revolution as well as demand. Um, and we're particularly bearish on um, the uh, LNG business, which, of course, is the new savior for the energy business, liquefied natural gas, um, which is going to be a disaster going forward. But uh, separately, um, the the commodity economies, I can't stress enough, are going to be stressed here for a number of years. And and it's a real issue. And, and uh, I did a presentation on Brazil a few years ago and, and just you know, made the point that, that if Brazil goes in South America, well, then you have Brazil, Argentina, Venezuela, Colombia teetering, Peru and Chile as export economies to China. I mean, you pretty much have that whole continent. But did these guys, uh, did these, did these big emerging market players over the last decade? I mean, in the ten years following, you know, that 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 pronouncement in China in two thousand one and the WTO, did they not learn the lesson to kind of um, husband cash and have some more self determination after all their misadventures with the International Monetary Fund? I'm trying to ask you if they've kind of they've kind of built themselves a wiggle room. They have some cash on the balance sheet. Uh, to stave off some sort of death spiral into default and downward. Well, some some do certainly some some of the more conservatively run one, but then but then let's add let's add Russia and Nigeria to the mix, and it's, I mean you know where you've got these massively large uh, countries with large populations who totally depend upon oil prices, and and again whether it's China's fault or all linked, you've got really a large number of countries who are dependent upon commodity prices. To, to sustain their budgets, to service their debt, so on and so forth. And, and 
that I think is is still going to be a cloud for for at least a few years. So even a story like the uh, miracle in sub-Saharan Africa, where you've seen above trend uh, growth rates, and you're told by frontier investors that these are non-correlating economies that they've they've gotten up on their own two legs already. Uh, yes, you see the Chinese building bridges and dams in places like Zambia and Mozambique and Angola. You know, no questions asked. They'll deal with the governments in Chad and some of the most nefarious people like like in Sudan. Uh, but uh, that that if China goes, all of that goes as well? A lot of it will go. I think, I think a lot of that story has, again, been the knock-on effects of the commodity boom. These countries all have, have various hard assets that they sell that people wanted. Infrastructure was built to get them out. And now there's just overcapacity everywhere. Wow. Um, Jim, I want to get to uh, maybe some policy remedies for this and why uh, China has gotten to the point that, you know, you talk about moral hazard from the Chinese perspective, that it feels like it needs to prop this this kind of strange backwatery uh, local stock market. It's one thing uh, for outside investors to buy Hong Kong listed shares. There is the uh, the, the British tradition there and and transparency, and uh, it, it feels very much like a first world place to visit. Um, what what does this mean? The fact that the Chinese government there felt like it need to it needed to put its suasion and its capital behind uh, something that's looked at as the kind of the province of, of of speculators of punters. Actually, a lot of people in China who don't have checking accounts have brokerage accounts. Yeah, and and what's interesting was we didn't we didn't understand it either. Um, and, and then starting in in the summer of last year, August and September, we began seeing these editorials in in Xinhuan, People's Daily in in English exhorting the people to buy stocks and that it was a, a reflection, despite the so-called new normal of lower growth, it was a reflection of the long-term um, uh, growth of the Chinese economy. And, and it, it went on and it went on into the spring after the market sort of went hyperbolic and and, uh, and got even more strident the higher it went. And at the same and, time, and they're, they're more than exhorting state-owned or intimately linked enterprises to buy local shares. Well, and, and, and then when things rolled over, not to sell. But it, we, it, it really puzzled us until we sort of looked, stepped back a little bit and looked at, at the, the current group of guys in power. And it made more sense because one of the things I think that people have, have sort of missed until very recently is just how much different Xi Jinping is from his predecessors. And I, and and I think that has become an important part, an, uh, an important part of this story, and needs to be thrown into the mix. It's just what a different different regime this is. It's much more nationalistic. It's much more anti-Western. It's much more propaganda oriented than the previous two regimes. Um, they're you know f for, they're sending university professors out into the countryside again. They're putting cameras in classrooms. I, I remarked at the time uh, that uh, it was interesting that one of the first things he did was he told the car show models to cover up when he got into <laughs> office. And, and, of course, we've had the Macau crackdown. And, and th so there's a new stridency but also sort of this new puritanism. More importantly, there's been a crackdown on the Internet. And, and, and so I think that, that there is much – of the Xi Jinping that reminds me in a, in a sort of weird way of, of Vladimir Putin. Mm. Um, this nationalism uh, around a national image. Uh, my view on Putin is, of course, he's not, he's not an apparatchik. And Putin, from, Putin will uh, be visiting China in a few days. No, no coincidence, They're, they're good right? friends. And <laughs> Xi Jinping said he sees himself, he admires Vladimir Putin. And Xi Jinping was the only world leader who visited him at the Olympics of any stature. 
Um, but, you know, if you see Vladimir Putin in the eyes of a 19th century czar, the sort of, you know, cavorting with the wild animals and the embracing of the Orthodox Church and the anti-gay, then you begin – his his behavior begins to make a little bit more sense. I think Xi Jinping really sees himself as, as, as a, an old-style, almost Chinese emperor with, with, you know, yes, within the confines of the Communist Party and the organization and slogans, but it's really about China. It's not about exporting the idea of – of of uh, of communism, it's 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 all about China with him, and um, I think that that people sort of miss that. And there's been a real anti-Western tone to to his his pronouncements and his regime. Um, and I, and I think again, this is sort of important. Do you not subscribe to China's at least uh, the signals that they put out that they want to be part of um, necessarily multilateral efforts, say at climate change or? Um, environmental protection, when you see things like uh, the Hayes crisis over there, or food safety, where they can't live like they are an island? Or is this just for distraction? I mean, they're, they're, I, this is it kind of speaks to the difficulty of running a, a hugely integrated, indispensable, multi-trillion dollar, number two global economy with a control freaky totalitarian regime. Yeah, well, I think you're right. And, and, but I do think that, that environmental issues are, are really to the fore and are important. I mean, the issues of food safety and, and air quality and polluted water, I mean, they can't avoid them. And, it, and it's a hot button for the masses, as was corruption, which is why uh, Xi's anti-corruption drive has, has been so popular um, amongst the masses. Um, but I, I do think that, that they are worried about the pollution issue. Uh, it, they can't ignore it anymore. Physically, they can't ignore it anymore. Hmm. Um, it, it's impinging upon quality of life. And I speak to more and more Westerners who have left Beijing and Shanghai and just you know, they don't want their families to be there. So at some point, you know, for posterity's sake, before we get into some of your other views, uh, Jim, if we if somebody revisits this 25 years down the line, you know, I don't know if podcasting is a technology or Facebook's going to be in charge. Do you think that China's going to have an overhang like Japan did, where it's going to take decades to kind of sand down this debt to fill in and knock down these empty towers to, you know, these Potemkin cities and uh, uh, zombie institutions? Are we are they approaching a lost decade or two? Well, if they handle it the same way Japan does, they could. Um, if they if the debt clears and they, they go through, you know, Wait, but to handle medicine. it, you have to have a law, a hard landing. And if you have yeah. a hard landing, you risk the Chinese street. That's the way I see it. Well, but, but the, the sort of paradox is if there's anybody that could handle that, it would be the Chinese. <laughs> um, so I, I don't know. I'm, I, I'm not that how this comes out of it. I, I really will have to just wait to see how it how it develops. But certainly we're seeing the stresses and we're seeing all the ingredients for a problem that will have to be handled somehow. Um, and, and it'll be interesting to see you know, how they handle it and how the government uh, deals with it. And does this one-party government survive? Who knows? But looking looking at some of your views and the slides that you put out and looking at the the, the numbers, I mean, you talk about the, the, the construction volumes that made you do a triple take. I mean, it's one thing you take, you know, I'm, I was raised in Miami and Miami was laid especially low by by subprime. And you had, you know, you, you, you go out on a boat on Biscayne Bay and you look back at the skyline in 2008 and 2009, it looks like a war zone. But it, it did fall hard and it had the Venezuelans and Argentines and Brazilians come in and, and now Miami's booming again. You've had uh, things that are 
hundreds or thousands of times the size of a Miami. Uh, maybe the credit bubble, the credit overhang to end all credit overhangs in China. And I just don't know how this plays out writ large up and down. Uh, how many Robert, dozens of cities that have millions and millions of, of people living in them? Rob and I have a place on South Beach. Miami is a lot nicer place than Xi'an <laughs> or Chongqing. I can assure you of that. And and wealthy foreign buyers will not be buying those condos. Well, and, they did. You know, I did. I did notice that somebody came out. I don't know if it was the city hall in Miami or the chamber of commerce, and they are exhorting the Chinese to come there and buy property because you know no. it's all connected. They're worried that if the Venezuelans become unhinged. Uh, anyway, I'm just I'm just trying to imagine a scenario. And you you know you talk about um, uh, Hugh Henry before and and. These cities, these Potemkin cities that have millions and millions of people in them who cannot afford these brand new shiny uh, boxes. Well, that's, the parad- that's the paradox. The people you know working on these buildings can't afford to buy an apartment in them, and and that is, and so many of them sit empty as as just sort of either unsold or if they are bought, bought as stores of value. And and you know for those of us that 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 know real estate, I mean, I've always said to my Chinese friends. Well, why don't you rent them out? And they said, no. And, and Chinese apartments, by the way, are sold bare. They're sold with no flooring, no appliances, no inner walls. They're boxes. And the Chinese basically believe that they're stores of value so they should stay empty so they can appear new. And I, I just tell these people, do you know what happens to unoccupied real estate? I mean, you get mildew, you get squatters, you get you know infestations. I mean, real problems. And And this is all new to them. They don't know because the real estate boom has only really started in the late 90s. Mm. Um, and so you have a whole first-time generation of people who bought apartments that are sitting empty that they think are appreciating, that are probably, in fact, physically depreciating. Is, and, China, and, is China capable then of taking a kind of, uh, you know, a, a, a hard landing, the lumps, uh, you know, bite, bite your lip and just deal with it? This is what I don't understand. You, you, you alluded to it beforehand. If the government is ready to crack down and keep that iron fist, you know, in the unraveling of the 1989-1990. And devalue their currency and print lots of RMB. That's the corollary to it, And you course. would just yeah. expect the street to stay dormant. I mean, and you told them to buy stocks. And they're sitting on non-yielding, <laughs> non-yielding assets. No, Jim, I know, I know you're not a, you know, a political scientist, right. or you don't necessarily keep all the fingers on the pulse of, of of the Chinese street. But that you wonder if that is the true nightmare scenario. And then what is the United States going to say? Well, we'll condemn you in the Security Council. Yeah, I mean, again, out of my ballywick, but uh, the real estate markets and and what goes on there are far more important than the stock market. And and. Um, and, and again, making the transition from this construction-driven economy to a consumer-led economy, what about all the people that work in these industries? I mean, you know, where are they going to find? Where are you going to put them to work? And so that's why this transition is so tricky. Um, it, it's not going to be easy and seamless, as the China bulls believe that you just simply downshift, and each year, you know, uh, you get more and more consumption and less investment. Um, when I started looking at China five, six years ago, investment was forty-six percent. Of GDP, and after all of the hand wringing and 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 you know we're going to change this, we're going to transfer, whatever. Now it's forty four percent of GDP. Mm. Well, it just hasn't happened. Goodness, uh, Jim Chenos, do you believe that uh, Joe Biden can rescue the world from this apocalyptic <laughs> scenario? <laughs> um, the vice president is a good friend. I have no idea if he's going to run or not, but if he does, I will support him. Well, why so? I mean, if I, I just I, I want to unpack this too while I have you is uh, he's got to seriously be on the fence 
about this because Hillary Clinton has such a head start. She's, you know, it's fait accompli. She's been coronated. All of these fundraisers have stepped uh, kind of behind her. And you you do force the issue where it becomes uh, a vote on the uh, incumbent in the White House. And maybe the Democratic Party doesn't want to set it up that way. Well, I can't speak for the Democratic Party. I'm, I'm, I'm just one one uh, one person. But uh, I, as I say, I, I know the vice president. I think he would make a great president. I think he has a history of working with people across the aisle and people on the other side actually like him and admire him. Uh, I think he actually uh, hits a chord with the middle class that a lot of the other candidates might not hit. Uh, it's interesting. I had, um, I had dinner this past weekend uh, with some friends who are Republicans. And uh, the one quote that came out at uh, dinner was, look, if, uh, if it was Biden versus one of these clowns in our party, I'd vote for Biden. <laughs> and I think that's an interesting statement. I mean, I think he, apply, he, he really does have an appeal to people who are sort of independently minded. Um, and uh, he certainly has the experience. Um, he's gone through a lot, of course, recently. But uh, we'll see. I have no idea whether or not he's going to run. They are going to be judged uh, in large part on, on um, some of their foreign policy accomplishments. Um, maybe they didn't want this to be a referendum, for example, on the Iran deal, uh, which which has the country and Congress divided. Uh, how is it that, you know, you see this playing out? Is this going to be uh, another election, you know, where, whereas 2008 dealt with decidedly U.S.-centric issues in the financial crisis, well, which then emanated to the rest of the world? Well, let's just put it this way. In 2016, barring any any unforeseen things, we're going to have the stock market near record highs. We're going to have corporate profit at record highs. We're going to have gas prices very low. We're going to have mortgage rates very low, house prices at all-time highs. We're going to have universal health care. We're going to be at peace. Um, this is not a, the worst record to run on, I think, uh, if, if you're uh, tied to the Obama administration. Uh, you know, eight years of peace and prosperity. You know? <laughs> Let's bring in the other guys. I'm going to hold your hand to the fire. There is, there is a real possibility of a Jim Chanos <clears throat> hedgy uh, photo op with Elizabeth Warren, uh, the bane of Wall Street. <laughs> that could happen. You guys could actually be seen. You could be stumping for Biden Warren. I'm really holding I, your hand to the fire. I now. served on a I served on a panel uh, with with Senator Warren during the crisis when uh, when I think she was uh, still a, a, a professor. And uh, you would get look, pitchforked I mean, out of the Hamptons. What are you thinking? <laughs> oh, I've always been considered. They they think I'm a communist anarchist out there anyway. <laughs> the land battles in the Hamptons. You'd have to you'd have to repair to South Beach and and go into hiding. Um, I do want to ask you. Uh, we we talked about energy beforehand in commodities and that there's a good and bad thing uh one of you know you want to kind of rain on uh, uh, sunshine so to speak here you are really skeptical about the the solar miracle in the united states about especially residential solar and solar city which has uh the blessing of elon musk and the elon musk yeah. tesla family appeal yeah you don't think that works and and you think that it's a big financing scheme well i i in that specific company, we have a problem with, with their business model. I'm actually a big believer in solar. I think that's that's actually part of the problem. I think solar is going to get very cheap and it's going to become ubiquitous and it's a great thing. And it's one of the reasons I'm, I'm, I'm so bearish on natural gas and LNG and, and to a lesser extent. But oil. wait, hold on. Solar, oh. I thought solar is predicated on China vastly overbuilding solar infrastructure. China being the bidder of size on these enormous plants. China having to bring power plants online, you know, what is it, once a week? Um, and then bringing raw material prices, silicon prices down, uh, the learning curve. And at the same time, comparatively, uh, hydrocarbon prices being high to incent 
the capital markets to back alternative energy like solar. Right. Right. Well, but it, but it, but the, that's happening, and it's good. I mean, prices. Well, are, oil prices are panels. tumbling. Right. But, energy but prices, again, natural gas prices. This is where I want to. I kind of press you on it. You're seeing. You but know, the, the utilities don't. The utilities don't use petroleum to in the United States. They to, use natural to, gas, to, and you see and natural coal, you, and coal and coal, and and so right now, right now, if you look at, at a typical power plant, you know it 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 costs you. F- between, depending on the state you're in, you know, 12 cents, 20 cents uh, uh, per kilowatt hour. And uh, uh, the, the guys who are putting panels on your roof, like Solar City, are doing it for sort of 17 cents an hour plus an annual escalator. Um, but right now, institutional solar, uh, distributed solar at, at the utility level, uh, is some of the facilities now are producing wholesale at 3 to 5 cents per kilowatt hour. Compared to a natural and- gas or coal rate of what? Well, I mean, but that's before transmission and, and markup. So mm. uh, transmission markup is sort of 6 to $0.12, cents depending on the market, per kilowatt hour. So you're going to – right now, if you get uh, solar at, at an institutional size, um, you're in the low teens as opposed to the high teens per kilowatt hour. And, and, and that's revolutionary. And it's going to only get lower um, as transmission costs go, go down. So – I mean, we, we're, we're big fans of solar, and we think solar will grow dramatically. The problem is, if you look at a company like, you know, Musk's affiliate, Solar City, I mean, they're sort of, they're sort of the, uh, the solar equivalent of the guys selling you, you know, aluminum siding door to door. I mean, I think they're just selling a basically slightly more economic product today that will be much less economic in three to five years, forgetting 20 years. But they are the intermediary there, you know, with their balance sheet and the difficulty of taking all the upfront costs to get these panels put on your roof for people who can't or don't want to, you know, swallow, what, $30,000 upfront. You would think that there's there's something very legitimate to that, especially when interest rates are low, well, when solar prices of, are falling. There's lots of local contractors now in, in, in league with banks who will do it for you at no money down and you keep the investment tax credit instead of Solar City getting it, and you, they pass the savings on to you. So there's all kinds of ways to do it that are cheaper than, than, than theirs. Um, and, and the problem is, ultimately, Solar City doesn't compete with electric utilities. It competes with other solar companies. Mm. And, and that's the real problem they have. And they tie you up for in, in their leasing program for 20 years. And the whole idea is, is that Solar City will make a ton of money. It's not really economic now, but at the end of 20 years, Oh, my God, they're going to have those panels for nothing, and they'll be able to lease them out again. And I think those panels will be worth pretty much nothing in 20 years. I think you can buy the panels that Jimmy Carter had put atop the White House somewhere on eBay. You know, Ronald Reagan unceremoniously (laughs) ripped them off. (laughs) I don't think it's industry standard technology at this point. Yeah. So, And that's the problem. So so a lot of these companies are all different. But, I mean, we're actually pretty bullish on on the prospects for solar because it is getting, and God God forbid, even with some government incentives and R&D back a number of years ago, it's actually getting very cheap and getting cheaper by the day. And it's going down the cost curve. And, you know, in 10 years, it's going to be meaningful. What does this do to the big energy incumbents? I mean, you talk about your skepticism with oil prices tumbling about the likes of Shell and, and Chevron. But does this then break up the utilities' uh, natural monopoly if people are buying solar uh, left and right within 20 years? Well, again, most people will still have to be on the grid, um, you know, for, for emergency purposes or, or for those cloudy days but until we get real storage solutions. But... Um, but yeah, it, it, it's going to pressure. It's going to pressure the regulated utilities. It's going to pressure the natural gas companies, um, and, it, and it's certainly already on the margin pressuring the coal industry, mm. which is, is is struggling. 
In a couple of minutes that we have left, Jim, I, I want to get your sense on, on um, investor complacency in the United States. We just had uh, a correction, uh, a more than a 10% pullback in the market for the first time in more than a thousand days. Uh, that just hasn't happened in a long time. People really forgot the abject fear of 2008 and 2009, and and the China blowback really hit people. We had whiplashing moves, 400 points up, 400 points down. Do you think the United States? I mean, you did say before that we're not as intimately linked to the goings on in the local Chinese market. Do you think the United States market gets past this? Uh, I mean, again, I, I we're, we are very bad at forecasting specific stock markets. That's not what we do. We look at companies and industries. You did say before, uh, though, if if Biden is running in 2016, if people are going to the polls in November of 2016, they're they're dealing with a market that is near record highs. Well, I mean, I'm I trying if, to I'm trying to see how this stuff blows back to the great U.S. of A. the home front. Yeah, I, yeah look, it, I mean, it, we don't see any signs other than some concerns on stock market valuations in certain areas that I think are are pretty pretty exuberant um, but but I don't see anything systemic right now in the US that that is is problematic I mean but the, who knows I mean um, in in 1987 I mean we, we had uh, the a crash that I remember vividly uh, that you know sort of came out of nowhere. Um, and so, again, the stock market is volatile. It can go down as well as up. I think a lot of people forgot that because it's really been so, so consistently strong since 2009 um, with very few corrections and, and uh, nothing major that people got pretty complacent. And, and, and this has sort of woken people up that, oh, you know, there are risks in the equity market. Um, and I think that's that's what's sort of shaken people, um, is that we'd all gotten used to uh, just how to, what a comfortable ride the U.S. equity market has been for the last six years. Well, you at least can be uh, celebrating some sort of vindication or take a victory lap that, that um, your uh, theory has really been put into sharp relief on China. You're going to get all sorts of calls. It's been a treat for us to get you on the show this week. Um, before you leave, I have to ask you, there's a legend that you throw a spectacular end-of-summer party on the Hamptons. Like, it's it's Gatsby-esque. And I'm wondering <laughs> if, if this year's end-of-summer party is going to be especially great because everybody's going to want to buttonhole you about China. If you're going to break out the finest drinks and the biggest stone crab claws. Uh, this is your chance to invite the world, Jim. Well, I'll, I'll, first of all, I'll invite you. It's, it's a 4th of July clam bake, uh, and, and it's it's hamburgers, hot dogs, and uh, some lobsters, and it's anything but Gatsby-esque. But uh, you're welcome to come next year. And, uh, and, and you're saying on the here. record that, that, that Joe Biden and Elizabeth Warren are going to be at the clam bake. In I am not saying that. I am not saying that on the record. But if you can make it happen, I'll I'll invite them. I really appreciate it. Jim Chanos, founder and president of Kinecos Associates, a three billion dollar U.S. hedge fund that has been outspoken on China. Uh, I appreciate this so much, Jim. Looking forward to having you on again. It was a lot of fun. Thanks very much. Full disclosure: our engineer in Virginia is John Valentine, up at NPR New York City, Manoli Weatherill. We're on NPR One, iTunes, WRIR, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. On Facebook and Twitter, you can find us at Full D Radio and like us. Heck, love us. I don't know if you could find us uh, over the great firewall of China, but you can certainly try. Don't get arrested trying to do so. Rob, Rob, and Farzad, we'll be back with you next week. <laughs>